Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what is going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Welcome to another episode of the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. With me this evening is Russell Von Tool. Russell is the penetration testing uh, team lead with Sword and Shield Enterprise Security. He is a GAC advisory board member, has some experience working in the industry of energy, and uh, he's working on his degree through the SANS Institute and has several SANS certifications. Uh, you may recognize Russell from Twitter as Neon Dog, which I will share a link to that in the show notes, uh, as well as uh, he's wrote a blog post that's uh, been shared by some uh, pretty uh, pretty big deals uh, lately uh, that we're going to be talking about a little bit later, the multi-tool, multi-user HTTP proxy. So, Russell, how's it going? It's going, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for taking the time out of your day to be here. Uh, glad to be able to get all this stuff lined up and you know have a really good discussion that hopefully the listeners will get something out of. Yeah, me too. So, uh, did I leave anything out with your introduction? No, uh, no, everything was really good. Cool. So, um, you know, let's go ahead and get really down to it. Um, at this point, we would typically talk about the news. Uh, because this podcast is probably going to air in a couple of weeks from the time it was recorded, we're going to forego the news and we're going to have a discussion about the election. And yes, I understand last week we talked about the election, but I want to get a different opinion, a different point of view on your thoughts, Russell, in terms of the first question would be, do you consider voter registration databases to be critical infrastructure? The second one would be, Voting machines, would they be considered critical infrastructure? And the third is how – if you were given you like unchecked control to improve the security posture of the voting machine's electoral system, what would you change? That's a lot of questions. Hope I can keep track with all of them. Uh, hey, if you don't, I can. <laughs> I think your first question on you know, voter registration database is just as valuable as any other database containing people's information. You know, a, a database full of people's medical records is just as valuable as a database full of credit cards, depending on the target market that you're, that you're shooting after. Um, I don't think it's any more valuable in, in, than any other type of database based off the data that's in there. I wouldn't call the database itself critical infrastructure, but, you know, Again, any collection of data like that would not be nice to be distributed out to the public. Exactly. I agree 100%. I, I've even made jokes that I believe to some degree that we should have to provide a blood or a spit sample when registering to vote just so that there would be some sort of legislative requirement to hold states' feet to the fire in securing the data. You know, As we saw with Arizona and Illinois, they both had issues with their databases uh, leading up to the election. You know, like I said, I'm a little cynical about things, and the way I see it, uh, there's probably more than enough data about me already accessible on the Internet due to the number of data breaches that have already occurred. So I've pretty much given up hope. You could probably find out anything you ever wanted to know about me by looking through public data breaches as is to begin with. And honestly, you're absolutely correct. But, you know, I, I have to pose this question. Does that negate anybody's responsibility to still secure your data that you give to them in good faith? 
No, no, definitely they should still be securing it. But, you know, what happens when someone doesn't do good faith work where I do just get unhappy and that's about it? I guess maybe you can get some class action lawsuit. But I like to point back to Target, you know, they were breached. And then how much did that affect our market share and their customers? In fact, I knew Target was breached and I still shop at Target just fine. I don't, I don't even stop to think twice about going there because the risk is managed by my uh, by my bank, not by me. There's no impact to me. And you're absolutely correct with that. I mean, in, in the weeks right after the breach, I recall shopping at Target, but I used cash. Just, I don't know why. I guess I just fed into the hype for whatever reason. But, you know, with a company like that, they got caught with their pants that far around their ankles. I, I, think, I don't think that lightning's going to strike twice with them. <laughs> well, let's hope not. But, you know, you're, you're posing the question to me earlier. I had the same expectation of Target to not give out my credit card number to the bad guys as I do to anybody collecting voter registration information. But when they don't do a good job of doing that in the breach, it still doesn't really change my habits. Now, if I actually lost dollars out of my account and I never got them back, I probably would care. But as to date, there's not been a big impact to me. You know, my data has been stolen probably through a number of breaches, you know, LinkedIn breach, you know, breach after breach after breach. As of yet, there's no big impact to me. Um, it's usually managed by other ways, you know. I probably got credit monitoring from like 50 different agencies from all the different times my data has been breached from some other, some other place. Right now, the risk has been pretty low impacting. I think if it actually affected individuals in a more personal way, then, then things would uh, change. But I think it's kind of abstracted from the way it impacts people, so it's not taken as seriously. And it's definitely a unique perspective because most of the time when when that question arises in the concept of a podcast or a discussion with a security professional, usually that's when someone takes the opportunity to just start rolling with the doom and the gloom or even going down the path of, you know, FUD. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, but I mean, you know, in, in our business, you know, being client-facing and dealing with things, you know, of course – there's a time and a place for FUD, but at the same time, to what value? You know, yeah, so, what are you going to get across? Right. So speaking of FUD, I was at dinner a couple of days before the election, and a friend goes, so you do cybersecurity. Tell me about this election in cybersecurity. And I just looked at him. And I'm not really sure what everybody's concern really is because, I mean, I don't know exactly how the voting machines work. But unless they're all using one centralized database for the whole United States, unless they're sending their communications out across the network, it would really be hard to affect any kind of change on anything. If, even if you could impact one voting machine, so what? You know, uh, and Plus, we got the whole electoral college system where it doesn't even matter if the popular vote wins. You know, Affecting a voting machine, how does that affect an actual electoral college vote? And... How many voting machines would you have to compromise to affect any kind of reasonable change anywhere? See, even that, the way I understand it, they're networked in the polling place amongst each other there, but they're not like networked across the internet or anything. And honestly, I, I have no frame of reference for that because very much like the automobile industry used to be, and a lot of the automobile industry now, less Chrysler, Fiat, and Tesla – you know, they're very black box about things. So, you know, they kind of try to keep it really quiet. And, you know, I can use that as a segue into the, the final question of, you know, how would you change things if you had, you know, 
absolute control to secure, without a shadow of a doubt, the voting machines, the networking they're used, and the process that we have. Uh, assuming, you know, just keeping in mind that we're talking about cutting-edge threats that could be far more advanced in the next four years. Yeah, and I think that makes it harder for me to discuss in the sense that, you know, these these uh, cutting-edge threats, I still fail to see how they can impact a voting machine system. You know, the first thing that came to mind when my friend asked me about the elections and cybersecurity was maybe someone was going to, like, point the Mirai botnet at something. But the voting machines aren't online, so even if someone pointed a botnet for a d- distributed denial of service at voting machines, it won't even impact anything because they're not even reaching across the Internet for anything. So I was like, what's the point there? I don't, I don't see how an advanced threat could actually affect a voting machine of any kind. I think the way to secure a voting machine will be the same way you sec- secure any other type of thing from being tampered with. You know, you could probably use all the same controls that are used to secure vending machines and ATMs and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that's the biggest risk, right? I mean, someone can't just p- plug in a keyboard to a voting machine and start you know, running Windows commands on it and doing stuff. I think the best chance you get is some type of USB port being open or mo- Well, I... Um, I don't know how the voting machines in Tennessee were, um, but, you know, obviously I voted here in Georgia. And basically, you know, we provided our driver's licenses. They were scanned, and then we were handed a smart card that we inserted into the voting machine to do the transaction. And once that was done, we turned that in, right? Um, So in that same regard, you know, if someone had enough advance notice, which I understand this is definitely reaching, this is, you know, this is like, Take a drink, state level stuff, obviously. But if someone really wanted to do something, you know, do you see any capability or culpability of them bringing in their own smart card and just exchanging the two? For, for sure. You know, do you, that's totally possible. And you know, and that right there, that is the biggest threat because if you can implant some good malware on that, and you have a little bit of leading information about how this database is going to work. You know, yeah, if you go to the poll in Podunk, Georgia, you're probably not going to be – you're not going to have much of an impact. But if you can get some of those major polling centers in, say, like New York or Los Angeles, now you can make a pretty significant difference, especially if you go early or late enough in the day. Yeah, I still, I still don't think that um, – even if you could compromise one polling center and cast an unlimited number of votes in a single polling center, I still don't think it's enough to affect enough change to actually influence the overall election results. Sure, it'll it'll pollute that one polling center, but I mean, how many polling centers are in in a county? Yeah, and right, and you know, with that, I think the biggest threat that would come from that, if you were to do that and you weren't doing something that was significantly coordinated across multiple areas, you know, just for the sake of argument, uh, the only thing that really could come is you just cast so many bogus votes that it leaks to the news and as a byproduct, you know, the public opinion and the public trust goes away and basically the public calls for the election results to be thrown out. Yeah, good luck with that. Well, yeah, I mean... I think we have that problem even when we're not using electronic systems. Well, of course. I mean, you know, look at look at the year 2000, look at the year 2016. And I mean, you know, coming off the heels of the discussion about OSINT and social engineering as it plays into the election, look at the look at the misinformation campaigns that existed with the election anyway. 
in addition to you know the fact that we had some level of media bias, which that's the rabbit hole I'm trying to avoid going down. But you know, with that, and people still voted the way they were going to vote. Yep, for sure. But again, I still I lean back on the elect, the way the electoral card, the electoral college works. So what? Even if, even if you could take over ten polling centers and get a bazillion votes, it doesn't I mean the electoral college can still vote how it wants to, even if it's not the popular vote. And I'm sure that's happened before. Uh, you're probably right. Uh, your audio is cutting out a little bit. Okay. Uh, not entirely sure why. Just uh, giving you the heads up. Yep. Also on the um, on the voting systems, you know, if you asked me a minute ago what, what I would do to secure them, and this is totally someone else's idea that I heard on a different podcast. But I'll just say, you know, kind of goes back to standard IT practices and how can you audit the trail of stuff? You know, if you had some type of valid logging. Um, to like a write-only system, um, you could at least go back and audit, you know, if you thought there was something fishy, if you thought someone cast, you know, 10,000 votes, uh, hopefully you can go back and look at some type of logging system and, you know, see if that actually was impacted by some real people or not. Yep. But again, these are... Yeah, and, and I, I would agree all with standard, you. All standard type IT practices and, I would secure. I, I wouldn't come up with something new or reinvent the wheel. I think that's my general rant on information security. We know the things that we need to do. We just don't do them. Nothing is, ground, nothing is groundbreaking or earth-shattering that we need to do to secure our stuff except for just do cover the basics. Right. You know, that's why when you play Little League sports, you run all those drills to get that muscle memory down so that, you know, when you're in those extraneous situations, you can stick to the fundamentals and you're, you're – reasonably fine you know to to correlate this over to like the center for internet security critical security controls if you look at the first five the first five being the most important uh of the 20 but the first five are basically your absolute basics of information security if anyone's trying to get into information security that's a good place to start for sure you want to know how to stop a mirai botnet uh first of all don't use internet of uh things Secondly, uh, don't allow them to um, communicate external to your network uh, with outbound connections. And third, uh, find a way to put the manufacturer's feet to the fire. I got a simple solution for you. Even if all those things were still true, yet they had 14 character passwords with complexity and weren't shared, there would be no botnet. Yeah, you're absolutely correct there as well. Um, Again, simple password things like. Don't make your password admin. Don't make your password password. Well, yeah. So the Mari Botnet, I think, used a password list of 25 passwords, and I'm sure none of them were complex. I'm sure none of them met the Center for Information Security's complexity standards for a password. And you're, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, with that, I would love to put the burden on the consumers for that. But the reality of it is, you know, in that scenario, the burden has to be on the manufacturers because they're the ones that hard-coded these passwords on it uh, to the point where consumers were, A, not aware that it was there, B, the consumers may not have been able to change it, or, you know, three, any combination thereof. Yeah, there was a, I can't remember the name, I think it was a wireless access company or somebody a couple years back that had something like that with their product, and uh, I think it was the FCC or the SEC or somebody with a C in their name made it to where they could no longer claim their products as secure and they had to they had to submit to regular testing as a part of that problem. I recall hearing that on another podcast. 
Uh, I don't remember who it was. Uh, I do remember it being a routing device, and I want to think it was the FTC in concert with the FCC. If I recall correctly, you know, don't quote me for certain on that, but if I recall correctly, that's what I want to think was the case. Right. So that was my only good example of any time that a manufacturer was held to any burden. Um, but I still kind of go back, just like we we're talking about the voting machines. Let's say I have an IP camera system or a DVR system, and it is used in a botnet. Me as the general consumer, why do I care? If I can still watch my TV, if I can still get my camera footage when I need to, why, do I, why would I care that my camera was part of a botnet? And honestly, that's, that's a really good question. I'm not sure if there's a right answer. Um, the only scenario I could think of is, well, you know, with people like us being conscious security professionals, you know, there's obvious implications there. But I guess the biggest concern I could think of would be if someone really wanted to go on a witch hunt, they could probably say, well, no, you're responsible for the cyber attack, which honestly, I mean, that's grasping at straws at its most um, most sincere level of grasping at straws. But, you know, that's really about it. I mean, what outcome, uh, what changes for the consumer? Not a whole lot. Right. It's just like security versus usability. It goes right back to that. Yeah. So, you know, again, kind of like we were talking about the target breach a minute ago and and voting, uh, the only time you can get people to care is when it actually impacts them. If there was a nationwide cable outage because everyone's DVR was being used for a botnet and nobody could watch The Voice for a night, then people would care. But right now, there's not a personal enough impact for anybody to actually care. And that's, you know, to channel my inner Michael Santarcangelo, that's when when you're doing that straight talk framework uh, type of conversation, you know, what problem are you trying to solve? In this scenario, you're trying to solve a specific problem, but you've got to convey that to your um, audience and make it uh, relative to them. And, you know, I don't want to put the explicit uh, mark on this podcast, so I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say or not. But think back to when John Oliver interviewed Edward Snowden and Edward goes into all the technical details and Edward's like or John's like, "Okay, no one's going to understand that. This is the edited version. Explain to people how they're gonna how the NSA will steal their pictures of their genitals. Right. Exactly. Impact. When you put it when you put it into that term, people understand. Yep. Impact. They, you know, that's what matters. When it personally impacts people, that's when people care. Which you know is a separate conversation I have with people about you know the value of a pen test, and it's to show that impact. You know, so what I have vulnerabilities. Who cares? And then you know the pen test is the thing you do to show them what could happen and why they care and how it affects their actual business you know once things are personal and changes uh, something you're doing in a way that's personal to you then you'll care i couldn't agree more and you know uh to conclude this segment and take our first break and then uh to get into the meat and potatoes of the discussion i recall uh standing outside at uh, b-sides knoxville and there was a lot of people that didn't really understand what was going on and they said what is this and someone told them that it was a hacker convention and they laughed it off and was like, oh, no, yeah, that's illegal. <laughs> and someone stepped in and they used that genital picture analogy. And these people, like, grew scared. But you could see the look on their face once once, once it was leveled with them that, hey, you know, we're not out here to be malicious. We're here because we're passionate about what we're doing. And we're trying to learn new ways to be more secure about things and to help protect you. They the tone of the conversation absolutely changed uh, from apprehension, you're a nasty basement-dwelling 400-pound hacker to, okay, now, you know, I've always wondered about this. How, how do I fix it? Yep. 
Yep, again, you made it you made it personal to them, something that they would actually care about. Um, nobody would appreciate their genitals getting out to the rest of the world. I'm sure there's might be a couple people, but most of us wouldn't. And, you know, that kind of impact, you just sit back and think about it, uh, scares a lot of people. You know, the closest thing I can think of that comes to that was the Ashley Madison breach and how, you know, that exposed people in an uncomfortable way. You know, that was impacting for a lot of people. I'm pretty sure there was one or two people that actually committed suicide over that breach. That was impactful to people. And even with that, you know, I wrote a lot of blog posts about it. I even did a talk on the topic. And, you know, there were a lot of impacts that came from it. You did have a few people commit suicide. You had a few ambulance-chasing lawyers put together some class action lawsuits. And then you had, like, divorce attorneys that were, like, trying to get access to the database to mail out things or to coordinate with other people, other lawyers, to send out notices saying, hey, you were part of this data breach, you should join this class action, hoping that the person's spouse sees it, and then, oh, here's the thing from a divorce attorney. I mean, it's ambulance chasing, you know, bottom-dwelling, leeching at its finest. Uh, I heard a few isolated scenarios of that happening. I'm sure it violates some sort of ethics uh, agreement of lawyers, but, you know, that's... Lawyers, you know, if they're not information security or cyber lawyers or intellectual property, you know, I, they typically don't have a whole lot to say to me about my profession, so I'm not really going to say a whole lot to them about their profession because I don't know their profession that well. Yeah. I know what I see on TV. That's it. <laughs> well, we've also talked to all those as-seen-on-TV hackers we know too, right? But wait, there's more, of course. So let's go ahead and take our first break, and when we come back, we'll start to dive into the multi-tool, multi-user HTT proxy. Stay tuned. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. And we're back from our break. We've talked a little bit about the voting machines. And now we're going to shift gears and talk about uh, some research that uh, Russell has done. Uh, it's called the Multi-Tool, Multi-User HTTP Proxy. And at this point, Russell, the floor is yours. All right. You know, obviously you could tell I'm not a very creative person. That's not a very ingenious name. I should have came up with something cooler like, you know, Xeon or something for the name of what I was doing. But, uh, yeah, so. Now that we're colleagues, I'll help you out with that. I'll, I'll help you come up with some creative, um, some very creative uh, acronyms. <laughs> yeah, I could use a little bit of creativity on that part. Uh, but as the blog post is called multi-tool, multi-user HTTP proxy, it kind of came about because, uh, you know, I use a lot of tools like Empire, which I love, and Meterpreter, which I love, and Beef, which I love, and that, you know, that you can, you can run the tools up on whatever port you want to, but the reality is when you're attacking an actual network, usually if they've configured their network correctly, uh, only like 80 and 443 are allowed out. So I either have to stand up, you know, one box just for Empire, one box just for Metasploit, one box just for Beef, so that way they can all operate on a single port. And I was growing a little frustrated with that. And then, you know, we have multiple analysts, and if they want to have their own listeners up, then they're going to have to do the same thing for all their instances of tools that they want to catch stuff on. So I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, I'll just go ahead and take a the general use reverse proxy, Nginx, you know, that's what Nginx was made for. It's good for, you know, doing reverse proxy, and I'll just, you know, cobble some of these pieces together, and I'll try and solve this problem. So that's what I ended up doing, you know. I was trying to find a way so that way 
all my tools could hit one specific interface over HTTPS. I actually went out and registered a cert with um, Let's Encrypt. So I had one valid domain name with a valid HTTPS cert, and all my traffic would just hit that, that front end of the Nginx server. And then once it gets to the Nginx server, it kind of splits off based off of some um, proxy rules to go off to different boxes. So like I said, I mentioned that I used Nginx for the reverse proxy, and I creatively, uh, sorry, creatively came up with uh, using a slash M in my URL for Metasploit and a slash E for Empire. Again, I'm uh, not winning any points here on the creativity part. No, but that ties into the Zen of Python. Uh, and just to get this, bring a little Zen into things, the Zen of Python states that simple is better than complex, but complex is better than complicated. Right. So you kept it simple, which is fully permissible. Yeah. Uh, I try and, like I said, yeah, whenever I'm writing any code myself, I, if I can use single letter variables, I do. It helps out for me. But then when I come back to it like six months later, I'm like, what is this thing? So actually, sometimes naming them out is, is better. It depends on how, how complex the code is, I guess. And yeah, I mean, sometimes commenting might be good too, but either way, right. outside of that. So um, you know, just so that the listeners know, uh, can you give a brief overview kind of what Empire, Beef, Metasploit, Meterpreter, uh, yep. and all your tools that you mentioned are so that they have a full contextual view since we have varying levels of skill and technical expertise, listeners? Sure. Sure thing. Meterpreter is probably the most popular or widely known. It's uh, the remote access tool component of Metasploit. It's essentially used for command and control. Uh, that's kind of one of the interesting things about Metasploit uh, is you could set up a payload to operate over all kinds of different protocols on all kinds of different ports. Um, one of the payloads is HTTP traffic or HTTPS traffic, but you can quite frankly use a number of of other different things, but Meterpreter allows you know me on my computer to control the infected computer and do all kinds of things with it. Meterpreter um, can be compiled into uh, many different packages and run on different systems. That's probably the most commonly used. That that one besides um, Beacon from Armitage might be right up there with it. But you know, Metasploit and Meterpreter is free, so the general public can grab access to that and use it anytime that they want. Uh, Empire. Uh, is the same thing. It's a remote access tool, but what's unique about Empire is that it's a PowerShell agent. It runs in PowerShell on a Windows box that has PowerShell, and you can use a, a download cradle string. Where you execute this one command um, on a computer, and it goes out and it grabs everything in the memory, and that's my favorite part about it, is that you can run Empire so that way the whole agent is running in memory only. There was no executable put on disk anywhere nothing like that. It makes it a bigger challenge for forensics people to kind of figure out what's going on. I mean, you can obviously try and identify the command and control traffic going on. That's a different thing. But uh, Empire operates primarily, not primarily, it operates on uh, HTTP traffic as well. It uses uh, normal SSL TLS traffic. Uh, Beef is another interesting tool. Beef is pretty much a JavaScript library file that allows you to control an encrypted browser. So, you know, if you have cross-site scripting to a web page or you're able to put any type of content in like a phishing email or a fake landing page, it just loads that JavaScript library in your browser and it gives me a certain level of ability to command and control your browser through that thing too. You can do things like 
I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of beef, actually. So uh, I've been working on a lot of talks, and I've I've given the talk a couple times as a dry run, uh, prior to any cons, if anybody's willing to accept me. Um, and honestly, it's talking about OSINT social engineering uh, from a systematic perspective, but then the technical portion of it, we actually use social engineer toolkit, and I demonstrate you know a few things like okay, here's how you make a uh, a malicious USB. Here's how you do the, you know, you embed a macro or, you know, make a malicious QR code. And then you find a way to get the user to click something that has beefshook.js in it so that you can do just that. You know, one of my favorites being the unsubscribe button in a brute force um, email campaign for what uh, the tool I'm working on right now called Guppy, uh, which is a Python based uh, phishing utility. Uh, that attack we're calling the CARP, um, basically all it would do is send a bogus newsletter to someone every day with a giant shiny unsubscribe button nice. to get them to get tired of it and unsubscribe. When they hit the unsubscribe button, that is the payload. <laughs> That's a nice one. I actually do that in my phishing emails uh, on paid engagements. I don't, I don't spam them with multiple emails so that way they get tired of getting them. But I, I, you know, a lot of times spam appliances append a little thing at the bottom that says click here to report this email as spam and so I actually put that into my phishing emails except for the link doesn't take it to spam it takes it to the place I want it to go to excellent concept and you know what uh, we should probably make that payload in guppy and call it the swordfish <laughs> there you go <laughs> that'll work so one of the interesting things about uh, beef is that by default I think it operates on port 3000 I think um, and if you try and make a javascript library call out to grab that resource on something other than 80 or 443, uh, depending on the organization, it'll kind of immediately get flagged. You know, if they see web traffic leaving on port 3000, um, it'll get flagged. So that's why it's important to try and keep all these tools running on a port, hopefully 443, because you run less chance of being inspected. Um, I wouldn't say a ton of organizations actually do SSL TLS inspection that traffic probably passes through a proxy but may or may not be inspected depending on the organization. But, you know, if you start switching up ports for your HTTP traffic, there's a good chance it's not allowed out or it just gets flagged as malicious right off the bat. Uh, one time I was doing a, an engagement and I included a beef hook in, a, in an email um, that went to a landing page. And I'll just say a uh, straight-up beef uh, JavaScript file gets caught by AV. Uh, which it should, you know, that's out there in the public domain. So some type of obfuscation might work out better there. It's kind of the same thing, you know, a, a generic uh, Metasploit payload and a interpreter should get caught by pretty much every AV there is out there. So you also kind of got to look at that kind of thing, you know, uh, beef hook JavaScript library should get caught by any type of security appliance. Exactly. I mean, there's enough documentation out there of the common tools that... You know, if you going back to that whole SANS top 20 thing uh, or critical security controls, whatever train of thought you're coming from, if you're implementing those things and you have antivirus and some sort of protection, you should be able to protect right. yourself. But, you know, with that being said, security does fail. Occasionally, malware may disable that, uh, some really advanced malware or, you know, just something new. You know, there's there's a million ways that you could actually open this up, but, you know, from the attacker perspective, you really need to think about things from how can I be creative to bypass right. this? 
And that's why oftentimes you might hear me say things like, if you're going to be a successful security professional, you almost need to be clairvoyant. <laughs> I can see that. So I was mentioning, you know, that I use Empire and Beef and Metasploits Interpreter, and there is just a bazillion other tools that you could end up applying this concept to. I kind of briefly mentioned Beacon. Um, I, I'm having trouble thinking of the other tools. I thought of one the other day. I was like, oh, I need to include that one too. But the logic is simple in the sense that you have one front-end web server that has a legitimate uh, SSL TLS certificate that reverse proxies everything back to your actual command and control servers. So the way I use it is that I have a single box and on it I, you know, I have port 80 open and 443 open to deliver um, interpreter payload. I have port 8443 open to deliver Empire payload. I have port 3000 open for a beef hook. But when I'm delivering payloads to the client and they're you know, infecting a machine, all they see is the one piece of traffic going over 443 uh, back to that one front end server that's a reverse proxy back. So it allows me to get the best of both worlds. And then better yet, uh, you know, in my blog post I set up the actual first part of the URI is a, a global unique identifier and you can use that to, you know, if you have multiple analysts, when the traffic comes in on that same host, you can use that to set a rule that says, oh, this uh, unique identifier belongs to this analyst and send it over to their command and control server. So you can have multiple command and control servers that are all front-ended by that single uh, reverse web proxy. Uh, even better than that, you know, if your back-end uh, command and control servers get burned, uh, you can just change the front-end to somewhere else, but actually I said that backwards. If your front-end gets burned, you can just swap it over somewhere else, and while you still have your back-end servers, they were untouched. Nobody knows that they exist or where they are. And to make it even uh, more I guess I'll say more secure. Um, you can put a firewall rule on your command and control servers that only accept connections from your actual front-end reverse proxy, and that keeps them from being discovered or, or messed with uh, anything like that. And, you know, that brings up a very interesting point. Uh, some people speculate that the reason Shadow Brokers was able to obtain those uh, tools purported to be from the NSA was because someone had a command and control server out there and that they were very sloppy about it. So, you know, this right here, exactly what you're talking about is a prime reason why you need to implement some layer of security on your command and control devices, especially those existing on the public internet. Yeah, yep, I agree. So one thing that also kind of scares me, um, when I have a Metasploit box with 443 listing on the internet, uh, Metasploit is great at many things but it is not primarily a web server. And Empire is great at many things, but it is also not primarily a web server. Um, Nginx is primarily a reverse proxy, so I like to have the right tools to do the right job. You know, if I'm leaving something out on the internet that anybody can hit, I would prefer it to be an Nginx with least privilege than Kali um, Metasploit instance running as root. Uh, there have been exploits for Metasploit, there have been exploits for Empire, um, that would be horrific if a command and control server got compromised through the web interface for either Empire or Metasploit. That would definitely be uh, right up there with epic fails. Yeah, which, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to do. The, the one vulnerability in the, um, 
Empire application, there was a vulnerability called Skywalker, and it allowed, allowed you to get remote code execution on a box. Uh, using, using this setup that I have here, um, you can't actually fingerprint the backend command and control server to know that it was running Empire or to know that it was running Metasploit because at first you have to get the global unique identifier right um, when the, you set the rule up in the proxy so that way if the first part of the URI doesn't have the global unique identifier then the traffic just gets dropped or rerouted or whatever. It's kind of like almost like a password in a sense like this, you must know this long string of characters before you can even get passed off back towards the command and control server to do the talking. So all I have to say, you know, if you put a, a box on the internet that has a Metasploit listening on 443 and scan it, there's a good chance you can do some fingerprinting to discover that that's a Metasploit instance server, especially because uh, what's probably going to happen is that you're going to hit it and it's going to give you back stage zero or stage two of a interpreter. Um, but using this method, uh, you won't get back anything. It'll just keep looking like an Nginx server. So, you know, you get a little bit more security through obscurity in that sense of your backend uh, servers can't get enumerated easily. And that makes perfect sense. You know, you've got to have some level of, of obscurity when, when you're doing this kind of stuff because, you know, like you said, you don't want the whole world to be able to see what you're doing because that's how your IP address or your domain ends up on uh, malicious domain lists and then people like Paul Asadorian or Joff Thayer uh, ingest those malicious domains using their shell script or uh, tachyon net and now they're absolutely uh, for lack of a better term neutering your capabilities because they're redirecting via their own internal DNS to whatever they want so I think that's, that's pretty much the gist of the tool setup that I had going you know Again, I didn't. I got frustrated with having to have you know five different ports open to do a single job, and how that uh, keeps my success rate lower than is if I just had one port on four four three with legitimate SSL cert to to go through. In fact, I was just doing a test today with a client, um, and they were doing SSL inspection, and my agent failed simply because I was using a self signed cert, the one that's generated with Metasploit. So if I had been using this. Uh, configuration for that and had a legitimate uh, front-end SSL TLS or the traffic wouldn't have got dropped and my stages would have been delivered just fine. So that's actually one of those instances that perpetuates the thought process of as an attacker, you have to be right once. As a defender, you need to be right every time. Oh yeah, for sure. So more more clairvoyance is required, I, I suppose. Yeah. You know, uh, I was just thinking about, I mentioned to you earlier that there was another thing I was thinking about using it for. Um, there's a lot of times that I want to exfiltrate data off of a network, and the quickest, easiest way to do that is through one HTTP GET request. Um, and another way you could use this is just set up a generic Python or PHP listener on the back end that takes whatever data it's giving in a GET request and just saves it off to a file. And you, know, you can use this verse proxy again, so that way everything's hitting that same one front-end page, and then just based off of some rules you set in the proxy, you know, you can hit that thing, too. So, you know, if I had a beef and an empire and a boy and a, uh, something that captures just generic payloads over over a GET request, you know, that's like five or six ports right there. But using this method, I just have one, just four ports open. That's all I need to. And that method in itself is a great way to hide in plain sight. You know, 
one of the courses I teach is Introduction to Cybersecurity, and a lot of the discussion that we have, especially when we're going over the, the ports and protocols that you need to know about, and, and you know, again, when we talk about firewalls and monitoring, you know, a lot of the fundamental basics that you're teaching students for this, it, it revolves around, you know, pay attention to ports. You know, are you seeing things that look out of the ordinary? You know, with the Mirai botnet, outbound telnet sessions, that's a pretty good indication that there's something going on. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, look for outbound VPN connections. Look for uh, ridiculously long uh, SSL sessions or what have you. You know, but this right here, going over port 40, 443, that's something that while it should be monitored because, you know, you're using Google Drive, you're using Dropbox. If you're doing it in a web browser, well, guess what? You're over 443. Um, so it's really hard to monitor for, but, you know, the advanced uh, monitoring aspect of it, you know, you, you need to have some context with this. And this is where having something like a blue coat proxy or something along those lines you know, do you think that, you know, having a blue coat uh, with some good rules might be able to slow this down? Yeah, you know, there's some things, some kind of indicators you can look at, you know. If you're looking, if the analyst is looking at the traffic and they're able to actually look at the URI that's coming through, uh, they'll obviously have to be doing a HTTPS inspection to be able to see the URI. But um, I would say that it's probably not commonplace to see a long global unique identifier showing as part of a URI path. And then you'll probably be able to see the payload, and those, those should be pretty easy or, you know, look not normal. Uh, so it should probably raise some flags going up that way on what's going on. And then I think you have the normal, um, the frequency at which something talks back and forth to stuff. But both Meterpreter um, uh, and Empire have things that you can change in that make it harder. Like, you know, they have active hours. So, you know, you can set your agent to only talk back, you know, between 8 and 5 when people are normally using their computer. You can change the check-in, you know, every minute or two, or or some um, um, some um, odd number, so that way it's not constant. So it's not like every 20 seconds. I was thinking, I was trying to think of like a prime number. That's what I was thinking of. You know, it's something that's you know, if you set it to every you know 47 seconds, it might be a little more challenging to to get. So you can kind of configure the web traffic to even blend in um, more like an actual user using web stuff. Again, it's kind of the beauty of both um, Interpreter and Empire. You can also set the UI path that you want to talk to. So a lot of times, you know, what's the most common page uh, on a web page would be index.html. So I can set my agent to send back data on index.html. That looks normal. That doesn't look abnormal. Um, using this method I have in my blog posts, it should because there will be a long, giant, global, unique identifier in front of it. Um, and then then index.html, which, you know, kind of stands out. But, you know, you don't have to use a long global unique identifier. You can use, you know, one or two short characters if you want to. But kind of like with password strength, the longer it is, the harder it is to enumerate. And this kind of plays into the, um, like, IDS evasion and, of you know, encoding type attacks as well. You know, playing into that, you know, obviously it's going to change things. But... The funny thing is, it's kind of like that whole gotcha that everybody had with T-Mobile when they weren't paying for data, but they found that they could go to any website they wanted to as long as they appended slash speed test to it. Right. Yeah, that was pretty nice. Pretty nice find on that person's part. <laughs> yeah. Hey, maybe you should incorporate a speed test to this. Yeah, I could definitely do that. 
So that, that would definitely be something worthwhile. So uh, let's go ahead and take a quick break, and then uh, we'll continue this discussion when we come back. Stay tuned. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistencesecurity.net slash podcast. Attention security professionals. Have you been looking for a community of only security experts? Look no further. PeerList is here. PeerList helps you stay on top of the news by creating personalized feeds where you get posts from your community and blogs from top industry bloggers, all customized to your specific interests. No more email lists to discuss a topic with other experts. You can invite specific people to any discussion as well as contribute to any discussion on PeerList. Build your reputation by creating a profile and contributing content that will help others see your expertise. The better your content is, the higher you rank. Peerless never gives your information to any vendor. You are not a lead. You are a professional. Check out Peerlist today at peerlist.com. P-E-E-R-L-Y-S-T dot com. And we're back. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, we've talked about the offense of the multi-tool, multi-use HTTP proxy and how it relates to uh, Metasploit, Meterpreter, Empire, uh, and Beef. Uh, using Nginx so that you have a unified uh, HTTP or HTTPS connection so that you can perpetrate these types of attacks. And you know, we really got some good discussion to uh, quantify how everything just kind of works and uh, the benefits of doing so uh, in terms of the offensive perspective. Now we're going to flip the script and change it to where we're talking about how you would Things you would do to defend against this. So, you know, we briefly touched on things like packet inspection, uh, breaking the SSL stream using a proxy like Bluehost, and uh, a few other things. Is there anything you can think of off the top of your head, Russell? No, I think you kind of hit it. So there's nothing that you would do particular to this attack when it comes to defense. You would apply the same type of defense measures here that you would for any other type of HTTP attack, uh, and mainly that would start off with using a proxy out of your network. Um, sometimes people might be misled into thinking that because they have a proxy, it is still used. You have to actually drive the, the all traffic has to go through your proxy. There's some commands on PowerShell um, that will, um, when you execute the web request to deliver the payload, it will use the user's proxy settings, and there's different commands that you can use that won't use this proxy settings. So again, the primary defense here would be to actually have a web proxy so you can capture that traffic so you can at least have the opportunity to identify things that are malicious or abnormal or anything like that. If you're running without a proxy, there's a huge risk of never detecting that anything's going on to begin with. Exactly. And you know, when we talk proxies, of course, you know, Bluehost is something most certainly worth mentioning because when you're talking commercial-grade proxies, that's kind of the the Palo Alto of proxies, if you will, if you're talking next-gen firewalls right. and IDS. Um, do you think this would – do you think something like Squid could uh, detect and protect you in this at all uh, if configured properly, of course? Yeah, I'm not too super familiar with Squid and its ability to do detection, but I would assume that as long as you have a proxy – that you can go back through and look at log files, and if they produce log files, um, then you could be able to parse those log files to look for malicious or abnormal behavior. 
no matter what the actual proxy is that's going through. But the most important part is just, you know, kind of goes back to logging. That's kind of where the web proxy falls in in that one sense is you're keeping a log of actual transactions going on in your network and requests going on in your network. And it brings to another discussion about having a baseline and knowing, you know, what normal kind of traffic looks like, you know. Um, you can also use some type of heuristics to, for instance, you know, my computer at 3 o'clock in the morning probably isn't making very much traffic out, but, you know, if you're still getting command and control beacons, you can kind of see, like, you know, abnormal things. And the detection of this particular setup I have here, there's nothing special to, to identify this particular attack except for maybe looking at the long URI path, which isn't that crazy, but, you know, all the normal things apply when it comes to checking web traffic and, you know, evaluating, you know, taking IP addresses and evaluating uh, validating them against known bad lists is another good thing. But if you're not capturing your web traffic, you don't know what web domains people are going after unless you look at your DNS, I guess. But yeah, uh, SSL inspection would definitely help it a lot. I know a lot of people have web proxies, but not all of them are actually doing the SSL TLS inspection. So, you know, I think all those things are part of the critical controls too, you know. Um, so it should be, again, nothing abnormal to do to the detection here. Exactly. And, you know, just to play a little bit with some IT security buzzwords, uh, you know, it's always a good time to play uh, information security uh, BS buzzword bingo, right? So is there a WAF, a web application firewall that could protect you with this? Yeah, I suppose the, that you could, I'm not sure it would protect you against this. Again, it would be the same. There's nothing unique about this in particular, but a lot of times the WAF looks at, you know, malicious uh, payloads in a URL or uh, in a GET or POST request. You know, my traffic, you know, using these tools, you won't see malicious things like ticks for SQL injection, but a lot of times they can key on specific words. Like if you look at the payload of a HTTP packet and it has the Etsy shadow file in it, you know, a WAF will probably help you out there. But, uh, you know, WAF, I think, is more geared towards protecting a web application from being attacked what we're talking about here is more about detecting compromise, so probably want to be the most appropriate tool to go here. Plus, WAFs are usually in front of a web server that's internet-based, not in front of traffic leaving your network going back out the other way. Exactly. And, you know, I just wanted to draw that distinction because too often in sales pitches you hear the the salespeople evangelize how it, web app firewalls can stop all of this type of stuff. It's the end-all, be-all to everything. Where is it? Where have you been? Do, do you live under a rock? Just so you know, you can save 15% or more on your car insurance with Geico and so on, you know, just to dispel that. And, you know, obviously when you hear proxy, those in the, in the security world, you know, I, I want to ask this just as a joke, but could you protect yourself using Zap since it, it's a proxy, right? Yeah, you could do that easily. This is how you could protect yourself with Zap. What you do is you configure your browser uh, to intercept uh, your traffic with Zap, and then you never turn off the intercept, and you never approve any connection requests, and you will be fully protected. But can you access anything on the Internet? Well, you know, we don't need to do any of that now. We just need to keep you secure. That's why having your cell phone at your desk is a good idea. So Plug it into my computer. Well, there's always that. Um, you know, I've always come from the school of thought that... It is, as a security professional, I don't care what people do at work. I don't care if you're looking at porn as long as it's not on the company network. If you're using your personal device on your personal cellular network, that's between you, your manager, and your cellular provider. I don't care. Um, 
Now, if you connect it to my network, now I care. So, you know, the cell phone, that's obviously a completely different ball of wax um, from, from that stroke. It's a scary game to play when you talk about, you know, the, the number of mobile devices and our ability to access data. It's very uh, blurry. You know, I can open up emails on my personal phone from my company email, and now that data is on my phone. Or I send an email from my personal email to my work email. Who knows that there's been something messed in the payload of that email. You know, there's a lot of risk kind of associated back and forth with that. And uh, using email as, a, um, as an example, you know, forwarding emails off of your work email uh, to a personal email, you know, that obviously poses a data exfiltration uh, vulnerability in itself. Yeah, actually, somebody's written a whole command and control you can do just through Gmail. And another person's written one you can do command and control through Exchange. And that does not surprise me in the least. You can do command and control over just about anything. That's what's so, uh, for me, that's what's so awesome about it. You can, you can do anything. I saw a talk at DerbyCon like three years ago where they were using words and like product reviews or like on like Lowe's.com, like where you can go through and like leave a comment about something. They would just post stuff there and the bot would go through and get its next commands by reading the comments uh, from you know, product review sites totally legitimate looking behavior right you know who doesn't go look at amazon.com reviews while they're at work um but this whole time it's command and control grabbing out commands out of what looks like normal text and the same thing exists with like say twitter you know you see these malicious twitter accounts that are just absolutely talking some sort of nonsense you know sometimes they have a link and you can tell what they're trying to do sometimes they're just talking nonsense and you're like there's no human that is that ignorant or that dumb to post something like that this doesn't even make sense but you know it was brought to my attention at uh, my sans course that you know they are actually using things like twitter for command and control you know you you tie a script in you have your api key you have it set to where hey you know you you see this tweet come out do this function it's not that difficult yeah anything you do to look normal um exactly hiding in plain sight uh i you know, you can always play with packets in, you know, ICMP even, DNS. I mean, if it's a protocol, you can play with it. Um, alternatively, you know, while we're talking um, about this fun, if I can remember, because I, I just completely lost my entire train of thought. Um, I think we should trademark your, if it's a protocol, you can play with it. That sounds like something I want to hold on to for a little while. Hey, it's better than uh, some of the stuff some of the other podcasts talk about, like hacking sex yeah. toys. Purely kidding. I mean, I, obviously I listen to that podcast. If I'm going to make that joke, I have nothing but respect for that podcast. But, you know, we, every podcast is going to have their specific difference to differentiate them from the rest. And I, I, think, I think some of my goofy one-liners might just be the one for uh, this one. Not sure. Sometimes I feel like I have those Gary Busey moments when uh, I'll, I'll come up with some acronym that it's absolutely crazy, but when you look back on it, it's like, man, it's made so much sense. Yeah, if you name your episodes, you should definitely name this one. If it's a protocol, you can play with it. Um, you know, I might have to do that because um, the multi-tool, multi-user HTTP proxy uh, with Russell Von Tool will probably uh, exceed the lengths for SEO. So I might have to do that. I'm going to have to, I'm going to write that down. So, you know, there's that, the whole aspect of it. 
Um, I mean, I really wish I could re- recall what it was I was going to talk about because, of course, you know, it was going to be monumental was. Of, of some sort. Um, it would have probably been thought-provoking. I probably could have been recognized as a thought leader and probably invited to uh, shut up. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's just so much. Oh, I remember now. I actually heard on another podcast, not the one where they talk about hacking vibrators, um, but um, there was actually someone who infiltrated uh, an e-commerce organization, and they had breached their credit card database and what they were doing is they were embedding the credit card numbers in images. Oh yeah, I remember that one. I remember hearing I that. think they were talking about it. I want to think it was risky business. Yeah, I think that's what I heard about. I'm it. not sure. Not sure because like you I listen to all the security podcasts that are out there. Right. Um, you know, which just I was listening to that podcast and that was an ingenious method for like exfiltrating data but uh those pictures are also available to the public, but um, I'm not sure if it was like a going a little bit too far on like showing off capability or what uh, when it came to like exfiltrating sensitive data and images. But again, you know, if you have a normal look at your network, I would assume they're using the same image or different images over, but a lot of requests, if it was a high volume site, it might not look as normal, I guess. But still, like you were saying, trying to hide in plain sight at the very least, if I load. You know, Amazon.com, I also loaded 100,000 pictures, I'm sure, in the background. If one of those pictures had, you know, uh, credit card data in the metadata, then it would just look like normal stuff. You know, Amazon have no reason to think anything else was happening except for people using their site like they were supposed to be. Exactly. And then, you know, alternatively, and this is something that, you know, if you're embedding credit card numbers, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But you could always go the Stego route as well and use a tool like Hydan. Yep. Yeah, the possibilities are endless so. when it comes to... A command to control and exfiltrating data and all that stuff. There's right. No shortage of ways to do that. But from that vein, I mean, if we want to talk about that from a defensive perspective, the easiest way to defend against that would be file integrity checking. Uh, yeah, on the images, but I think that would be a little overkill to do file integrity checking on all the images that come from your website. And yeah, and it depends on the it depends on the size of your organization as well, and you know how much data it is that you have to worry about. Because honestly. Protecting your images, that, that's kind of low-hanging fruit. Of course, you know, you don't want someone to upload a, a gigabyte JPEG because right. you know that there's probably a lot. It, it's You're going to get a lot more than you bargained for with that. Um, but at the same time, you know, alternatively, instead of worrying about what people are embedding in your images, perhaps you should be focused on encrypting the database that they got the data from. Yeah, but if they already have the capability to either write data into the images or write images into the directory that's being served out of, they probably already have a fair level of permissions and have 10 other ways to exfiltrate the data if they can uh, get the web server to serve up whatever content they want. I mean, you could just, if you have a straight up HTML file, you can embed it in JavaScript libraries, you can do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and, and I agree with that 100%, you know, just basically postulating. So... You know, let's shift gears here for a moment uh, as we begin to close out this segment. Uh, in terms of your multi-tool, multi-user HTTP proxy, what are some of the integrations you would like to see with it? Um, you know, what, what do you consider to be the next steps? What would you like to see come of it uh, as it grows? Because I assume this is something that it's not once and done. 
Well, I think I honestly, I think I answered most of my problems when I first did it with uh, Empire and, and Metasploit. And what I'm working towards now is, you know, going to be playing multiple analysts and a shell will come back to, you know, my particular C2 server, but, you know, might not come back to someone else's. So it gives me the ability to uh, distribute them to go somewhere else. But right now, those are probably the main tools that I use, um, uh, Metasploit and Empire and Beef, to kind of go through there and do that. So... Uh, but I do know there's there's probably a bazillion other tools that you know have web front ends uh, for command and control to go back over and do stuff. I know some some people on Twitter have told me they have some good ideas to go forward into that, so I'm looking forward to doing that or seeing what they come up with on that. I mean, but yeah, you could plug anything anything that makes an HTTP request uh, go across there. I'll probably work on uh, what I briefly mentioned earlier, some type of uh, general purpose catcher that no matter what you post to it, it just saves it off to a file. Uh, a lot of times, you know, I'm on a system and I can just, in PowerShell, uh, make one get request out with a lot of data and some get parameters. And I don't I don't even need a valid response back. I just need the request to leave as a way to exfiltrate data or, you know, put all, you know, run Mimikatz and post the data um, to a post request back across this server, you know, using that same front end back to a general catcher page. Um, that saves it off to a file. Perfect. So, um, with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and take our final break. And uh, when we come back, uh, we will uh, talk about how to contact you uh, and uh, give you your parting words of wisdom and say goodbye. Stay tuned. Don't forget to check out our blog at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at advpersistentsec. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com, Advanced Persistent Security. Thank you for sticking around through our final break. Uh, this episode uh, with Russell, we've discussed the multi-tool, multi-user HTTP proxy. Uh, we did a little discussion about uh, voting machines, the elections, and what have you. Uh, we talked a little offense. We talked a little defense. We talked a little, uh, a little bit of everything. Uh, we went down a few rabbit holes, nothing too hardcore. At this time, Russell, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. During this time, uh, if you want to be contacted, tell us how to contact you. Give us any URLs or anything to any resources you want to provide, uh, any parting pieces of wisdom uh, and advice, especially to the aspiring security professionals, and then we'll formally say goodbye. All right. Uh, yeah, I can be reached on Twitter. Um, you could probably find my Twitter handle in the uh, show notes, but it's uh, neon dog with zeros. Um, Larry Pesci once told me he thought my handle was neon dong, so uh, that's not my handle, but you can reach me that way. Uh, on Twitter is probably the easiest method, or you can probably find me on LinkedIn by looking at my name. And then I keep all my postings, all my blog postings on our company blog at swordshield.com, so you can look for me to write stuff there. Uh, as far as people uh, aspiring to get into security or work through security, um, I just say stay connected. I'm a firm believer in uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. You definitely need to know some things, though, but I think you'll, uh, if you surround yourself with smart people, you'll have an overflow of information and you'll make up the what you know part pretty quickly. That's about all I got. Perfect. It's been a distinct pleasure having you on. I look forward to having you on on uh, some future episodes with uh, some tools. Uh, or, you know, whatever we're working on that we can talk about or uh, anything that's going on in the world. Um, you know, and on that note, uh, 
This has been the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Uh, if you like this episode, uh, please feel free to uh, give us a five-star review or other favorable review, like us, love us, whatever, on the platform you are using. Uh, you can email any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or grievances to podcast at advancedpersistentsecurity.net. You can follow me on Twitter at C underscore 3P Joe, the letter C, and J is or Joe is J-O-E. You can follow Advanced Persistent Security on Twitter at, at ADV Persist Sec. Uh, Most of the Twitter feeds are identical, so just be uh, warned of that. Uh, With that being said, uh, look forward to some upcoming episodes. We've got some awesome guests lined up. And uh, as I said last week, I've coordinated with uh, Brian Brake and the guys over at uh, Breaking Down Security Podcast. We're going to do uh, a joint episode with a pretty big guest. We're going to discuss some pretty fun stuff. Uh, It's going to be... the holiday special and book club kickoff. So definitely stay tuned for that. And until next time, stay secure. Thank you for listening to the advanced persistent security podcast until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.